reading and trying to interpret in a spiritual, in a yogic way, in a metaphysical way, and to explain some of the mysteries of the sayings of Jesus. And we are still in the Gospel of Matthew, somewhere in the end of the sixth paragraph. We are actually still in the middle of the great sermon on the mountain, the bulk of the teachings which Jesus gave. And in the previous lecture we had stopped talking about the story, the saying of Jesus about the treasures in heaven. And there he preached a total detachment saying that you cannot serve both masters at the same time. And here he continues. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What a magnificent teaching is contained in this paragraph. This paragraph was the main inspiration of the life of St. Francis of Assisi. Francis of Assisi took it literally to the point of indeed while the world around him was sick with conquest and trade and richness and all the things, St. Francis of Assisi was the only divine madman around who just wanted to be simple and to live like the birds of the sky. Therefore, remember that many Christian mystics, St. Francis of Assisi is just one of the later ones, but most of the fathers of the desert, the men and women that are the great Christian mystics of the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th century, they took this kind of statements literally. Um, I remember in the stories of the fathers of the desert from Sinai, there is a story with one of these chronicers, one of these people who wrote the chronicles. He was going on a road and suddenly in a tree, it was a fig tree. He sees a man in the tree, in the branches of the tree. And he asks him, 
well, who are you? What are you there? And then it is revealed that this man is actually a hermit. He is actually a spiritual seeker. And he's asking, what the heck are you doing in that tree? I mean, what kind of life is this? And the man told him, didn't our Lord say that you shall live like the birds of the sky? That means he took it literally. He was even living in a tree like the birds of the sky. And basically he was living in that tree and he considered himself the birds of the sky. And he asked him, what do you eat? And he said, well, the fig tree is producing enough to feed me. I'm eating the figs in this tree. You can imagine what is that a man should eat the fruits of a fig over one year, just like this. It means this guy was probably eating a fig a day or a couple of figs a day maximum because the fig will not produce that much at a time, at a given time. And therefore there have been people who did exactly that. Actually, if you are not aware of the background, you might not understand it fully because this starts from the Old Testament, from the history of the... Uh, Hebrew people of the Jewish people where Moses is actually first time the one who comes with this kind of thing you know, Moses doesn't put it so mystically that you should lead a life like this but actually it happens as an actual fact because history supposes that those people lived in the desert for 40 years now 40 is a highly symbolic number Moses fasted 40 days, Jesus fasted 40 days, those things lasted 40 years. It's like the number 40 is very repetitive in some things, like pointing to some cycles of nature. It's like a holy number, almost like you would say the number 7 or whatever. But nevertheless, the great issue remains there at some point in history, driven by faith and running from the Pharaoh and not yet having a house of their own, it is said by history that the biblical Jews, the Jews at the time of Moses, they lived in the desert. And they lived in a desert where there was basically nothing to subsist. There was no food in the desert for thousands of people or how many those people would have been in actual fact. And basically all the question is, well, what were those people eating? That means we can understand that John the Baptist has said earlier he was eating grasshoppers and honey or whatever. Surely there was no grasshoppers and honey for 5,000 people or whatever many people there were at that time. The numbers of the Bible are not always to be trusted literally because sometimes they are phantasmagoric. They do not verify in reality. And that is why the question is what is there? The ancient saints of Christianity have answered this question because there was an oral tradition that means things were known and there had been people have been doing exactly this. Uh, it is the famous mana, right? The name is known. The mana fell from heaven. The occult tradition says that this mana, and this is something preserved also by the later Christian saints, the fathers of the desert, who some of them did exactly that. The manna was supposed to be food coming from heaven. What was this manna in actual fact? The closest representation which the later saints have given to it is that this manna was some kind of crystalline white solution, with some, some substance which was like crystallizing exactly as dew, uh, drops of dew 
deposit on the leaves in the morning, in the early morning. Basically something like that, but something which when drying up will leave behind it a whitish substance, a white dust, a white powder, which would be like hard, like a crust, and basically uh, it would deposit on rocks and everything, so you would have to peel it off the rocks, like some kind of strange calcarose deposit on the rocks, whitish, you have to break it with a knife or with a tool, it's like a, the dental plaque on your teeth, some deposit on the rocks, which is supposed to appear overnight, and that was the only food they got. What that deposit on the rocks would contain, it's hard to believe if we can accept that the Tibetans in the 16th century, they were practicing the sand initiation and they were eating only sand, and if we accept therefore that human beings in extremis can survive on sand, if we admit that breatharians can survive on very little food or not at all in extremis, and that there have been cases a la Therese Neumann or Giribala from the books of Yogananda where people actually lived without eating. Of course, we can accept that the intake of the human being for surviving can be reduced to an absurd minimum and that, yes, a whole population would be surviving on mana. Basically, the old saints at the time of Jesus appears that the Essenes, the Essenians, the people who are more mystical, who practiced prayer, who lived in the desert and so on, they believed in this, that there exists a kind of gift of God which comes to people who surrender completely to God and that gift of God is somehow there appears a kind of deposit, a kind of substance that crystallizes overnight and which looks like a whitish crust, like a dust. And if you just scrap it off the rocks and collect it, you eat it, and that's what all you will get as food in 24 hours, but it appears it will be enough to sustain you. Either that power is just an alchemical, miraculous thing poured by God down and it is enough because indeed is a magic uh, miracle, or it is simply a power of faith and a kind of education onto the lower food, where the food itself is supplemented by prayer, by belief, by perhaps breathing, or other things, God knows what those people were doing. That is hard to say today. The fact is that this tradition existed and this is what made something very special in the Jewish history because we are not talking about one saint here and one saint there. We are talking about a whole nation. We are talking about a group of people, people by the hundreds of the, or the thousands or perhaps even more who actually were living, all of them, without any other food than some mysterious white crust powder deposit which was depositing on the rocks in big amounts and people were eating it. Surely that is not the rich type of lunch that you would like to take. That means probably like the Tibetans say. The Tibetans say when you eat sand you are hungry all the time but at least you can survive. In the same way probably eating mana doesn't have the same effect on your Svadhisthana as eating sandwiches or whatever. But nevertheless it is at least the minimum for survival. It's kind of a it's a complete austerity. You can imagine a whole nation for 40 years or whatever 
thousands of people living like the saints, not enjoying the deliciousness of food, but killing their Zvadistana totally and living on some white powder, on some white dust, on some crunchy white little thing which comes from the heaven, that's really an asceticism en masse for everybody, and it is simply something remarkable. That, of course, is like a collective tapas, which makes that at that time the karma of the Jewish people made them so very special in a way, because you'd hardly find so much faith and so much surrender that people, instead of running to the nearest villages or panicking, they would dare to stay at the mercy of God and at the mercy of elements and know that if one single day, if that power is not, if that powder is not coming down, then you are screwed or you start being screwed anyhow. It's like living completely at the mercy of elements, taking each day the way it comes. That means today indeed could be the last day of our lives. And in that way, uh, this is very remarkable, and Jesus resorts to that because that existed very alive in the soul of the Jewish nation at that time. The history was more fresh than it is today. So basically, Jesus is calling the attention. He says, if your ancestors had so much faith, they could live like this, and they surrendered to God, and God keep, kept them alive. And he gives them these examples. He says, look at the birds of the sky. They are being kept alive. How shouldn't you? It's like you have zero confidence. That is why he says you have little faith. Because it's like even the common sense would tell you that. And therefore, as according to this teaching, not just St. Francis of Assisi 13, 14 centuries later, but even the fathers of the desert, many of these fathers of the desert of Palestine, of Sinai, of Egypt, they did exactly this. I once told you when I spoke about blessing, I told you the wonderful story about St. Mary of Egypt, that St. Mary of Egypt withdrew, ran in the desert after she had a pretty depraved, or at least let's say a pretty wild life in all ways, in sensuality and sexuality and all the others. After that, she suddenly repented and went into the desert to go full power into her divine things. And when she went into the desert, that means if you would be a woman running today in the desert alone, where you will not see anybody for 40 years, just to be alone for the rest of your life, where will you find your food? Where will you find your water? It is completely incredible that somebody can have that kind of surrender. They asked St. Mary of Egypt, and she said that she also, like all the other saints of the time, she received some of this mana in the morning. Sometimes she found some bitter herbs in the desert, and she was eating them, and that was basically all. Isn't it the same with Milarepa? Milarepa, knowing that he has a terrible karma and he has to atone for it, he goes for one of the most terrible austerities mankind has known, and he is not even living in a warm climate like those people. He is living in an ice-cold climate and wind somewhere in the mountains, and the only thing which grows around is some pathetic little herb. You can imagine how little of that herb will grow in some 4,000 meter high mountains or whatever, and that it will be so unilateral. And yet Milarepa survived on that. It's a kind of a complete confidence. It's like a complete confidence that somehow the universe will not let me down. I am somehow significant, and once I give myself so totally to God, 
God will take care of me. It is almost like pushing it to the limit because some people will say, well, you just said that the devil tempted Jesus to provoke God, to tempt God, to jump and to see if the angels will come to save him or something like this. Isn't this also provoking God? In a certain way you can say, yes, if your food is insured, surely you should not provoke God and say, God, do a miracle and feed me. But on the other hand, these men and women who ran in the desert, they had no choice because there was no catering. There was nobody who could have brought them food. And they said, you know what? No, no, don't bring us any food. When I was uh, in the desert to see one of these places uh, in Joseva, in Wadi some 40 kilometers east from Jerusalem, it's a strange monastery in a canyon. Today, if you go to Israel, it's pretty difficult to reach there because it's falling on the edge of the war zone, of the danger zone. Uh, in this uh, St. George uh, monastery, they had the tradition of people who lived out in the desert. They have out there in a coffin, in a glass coffin, the mummified body, that means the unrotten body, because that's a Christian tradition. Uh, that's a parenthesis to what I have to say. Uh, which simply says that people who have reached a certain degree of saintliness, their body tends not to rot. The same thing was known a little bit about some Tibetan gurus. The same thing was definitely known about Paramahamsa Yogananda, who for two weeks or three weeks after his death, his body was still not decaying and not stinking. This is uh, something known very well in the Christian mysticism, that people who have sanctified their body through prayer, Mysteriously enough, it seems that when they die, their body does not rot. It does not get eaten by the worms. It just dries up like an Egyptian mummy, and there it is. There is not one case, not two cases. There are hundreds of such cases. One of the striking ones in the West, if you will deign to see it, whenever you go to Spain, don't forget to visit the city of Avila, where you have had the great Christian mystic Saint Teresa of Avila. You will be still able to see parts of the body of St. Teresa of Avila, like her right arm and everything, mummified. Because for centuries her body did not rot and it was kept in a glass coffin. And then by some mysterious rules of the Catholic Church which asked that the body of saints can be dismembered so you just spread limbs of it in new churches. As a long story, I don't know if I have time to go into that. By that kind of rule, the body was dismembered, but some parts of it, such as the heart, the right hand, and a few others, still exist. Any one of you will reach to Mount Athos, you can see the head of John the Baptist, of St. John the Baptist, on a silver plate. You can see the right hand of the John the Baptist. They are preserved. Many, many saints, their bodies actually did not rot. I have seen many such cases. There is not one, not two. It seems funny when you speak about this that people don't even know that such things exist. Uh, only in Romania, where I come from, I, I think there are at least ten such full bodies of saints which can be seen and touched on occasions, and you see they are not rotten. There is in uh, the northeast of the country a big monastery, a big church, which is keeping the... Uh, again, the this mummified sacred relics of a woman saint and uh, at once a year this coffin is open and the body is exposed of course it's not naked it's dressed in cloth 
its destiny. It has a silver mask on it. And basically, it's incredible because you can get to the point where you can actually touch this body through the cloth. I was very curious once when it was open, and I have been actually going in the front row and actually touched the arm and squeezed it, and uh, it was almost like a human. It was a bit harder like than a human arm normally. It was just like it was not even dry. It had a certain elasticity. You could squeeze it. It's like that person is sleeping. When I was in Joseva, in that monastery, I've also seen the uh, last fossil of this mummified body of Saint John. There is a Saint John there, John Jacob he is called. This guy passed away in 1962. He had been living in the desert in that canyon doing his prayer in a cave there. And they saw so little of him that actually they discovered his body only after two years because they probably saw him only once a year or whatever. They found out that he was dead only after two years. They knew that by the layer of dust which had been deposited on the body. When they found him dead, he had been digging his own grave with his own instrument. He had been putting a brick under his head. He was lying in the grave with his hands on the chest. It means the guy knew exactly he was going to die and when. When he felt he was going to die, he dressed himself in his priest clothes, in full regalia. He lied himself on the back in a grave, and he just passed away. And the incredible thing is that in the heat of the desert, while the flies are attacking everything and whatever, his body was unrotten. After two years of lying in the heat of the desert, this body was just dried up, mummified. They took it, they washed it, they did some religious verification, they have some rituals to verify some things, they have a belief that these things can happen because of two opposite reasons. Again, if you have questions, we'll go into that, but this is a little bit besides the teachings of Jesus, although surely they are part of the great Christian lore. And then they simply put it in a glass coffin. If you go to tomorrow there, you can see it. There are other such monasteries. There is uh, also in uh, Israel, there is in Saba or in Saint Saba, there is a monastery south of Bethlehem, very isolated. Uh, they have the body of Saint Saba, that's a body from the 6th century, and it's still like this. It's lying in a coffin, just dry, but not rotten. This kind of thing was supposed to be a sign of saintliness, that somehow the body is chemically transformed, there is an energy which prevents the rotting agents. It's like the pyramid power. It's like there is a pyramid. It's exactly as if the body would be put under a pyramid. If you would put a body under a pyramid, it would not rot, actually. Funny enough, the body of many Christian mystics and saints behave just like that. And therefore, I, I told you all uh, these things just as a parenthesis here to this uh, great issue, just to show you that there is a tradition that the body is changing in its chemistry, that there exists a sacralization of the human being through it, and so on. And uh, therefore, we are coming again back to this issue of food and eating. It's kind of, we are talking about completely special. And when I was in Koseva, the history of that monastery says that in that canyon, somewhere in the 5th century, 6th century, when there was a great uh, wave of uh, Christian zeal and enthusiasm, 
there lived, they say, up till 3,000 people in the caves and canyons there as hermits. It's almost incredible. It's true that there are a lot of caves and all of them show signs that they have been inhabited, such as stones are put at the entrance, like walled entrance. And those people basically did exactly what the Tibetans did. They were living in those caves and wall themselves in. It's almost like they would sit in the darkness in an eternal kaya kalpa and do prayer and simply ignore the world completely, like pushing the asceticism to the extreme. Uh, let's say there were not 3,000. These historical numbers, they are always exaggerated in such environments. Let's say there were just 300. There is definitely place in that canyon for 300 people, like if you put at least uh, 500 meters from each other or 300 meters from each other so that they shouldn't see or hear each other, they shouldn't be in contact, they shouldn't have any club. When you'll go there, if any one of you will have the grace to visit that canyon, that place, you will be appalled because when you look there, you see death in your face. Those people who went there, I couldn't believe it. When I saw it, I had the shock. I was flabbergasted for days because uh, the shock is that when you go, you, when you hear about it, you say, yeah, 300 people at a time, let's say, they are wandering away from this monastery and choosing to live as hermits. And the monastery was kind of providing for them or whatever. That's completely impossible. When you see that canyon, it's incredible because at some places it's like 100 meters down vertical wall and 100 meters up at least vertical wall. Sometimes it's 200 meters down and 200 meters high and you are on a path as broad as this. Basically you are in the middle of a vertical wall and on the opposite side is just the same. And on the opposite side there is a channel of water, an aqueduct of water, a miracle of engineering which was built by some of the prophets of the Old Testament some 5,000 years ago. It's the most incredible aqueduct which we have seen in the desert conditions. It is made like a U-shape, completely tight. It doesn't lose any water and it takes water all the way to Jericho, 40 kilometers away or whatever it is, 20 kilometers away. And the water runs through the desert uh, with a constant slope just for 20 kilometers like this, across a valley which is incredible, like 200 meters above a precipice and 200 meters under a vertical wall. Um, and then you realize with surprise, anybody who will go there and will try to make a calculation, you will realize that even in that valley, if there lived a hundred people, there was absolutely no way in which somebody could have ever provided for them food or water. That means even if a human being should drink just one liter of water per day, to carry a hundred liters of water to people as far as a hundred meters up on a vertical wall, and many of them, it would have required a team of acrobats to deliver water every day and food to those people. When you go there, you realize without any shade of doubt that if there were any people who lived there, 300 of them or 100, those people were crazy because they simply didn't receive any water. To get to water from this wall to this wall, you would be supposed to be a bird to fly because you would have to go 300 meters down a vertical wall 
and 200 meters up back on another vertical wall to pick up five liters of water and to come with it back to your house. Nobody can do that. It's completely impossible. And basically, the big question when you look at that reality is how the heck did these people live? Who lived here? How did they dare? It's completely superhuman. That means in natural logistics, there is no way you can explain that 200 people lived there. It's like those people, they went and they had only 40 more days to live, you know. I'm going in a black hole and I'm going to die because if I'm isolating myself in a hole 100 meters up there where only the birds can reach, how will I get the, at least one gram of food or at least one gram of water? And yet people did exactly that. That is why, remember that this tradition is full of this mysterious thing, that people listening to the teachings of Jesus, they simply said, okay, if God takes care of the birds of the sky, here I am, I'm gone. I am a bird of the sky. The move is on God. Jesus, our Lord, has said this. I will have to do just like this. Many, many, such as Saint Mary of Egypt, and countless others whose names perhaps we don't even know, they just went into the desert or some impossible places and they simply waited for the universe to feed them and to sustain them. They simply did literally that. What a faith you must have, what a belief you must have to just surrender and go straight forward into obvious death, realizing at the same time that the universe is going to save you, that is more than any average person can ever suspect. That is why, indeed, this is a miracle, and this teaching of Jesus is formidable. There have been inquiries in the Christian mysticism. All these St. Mary of Egypt and uh, hundreds of others who lived in the desert, what did they eat? And many of them declared openly that they were receiving the same manna that when they are alone in the desert, next morning, suddenly, when they did this act of saying, okay, now if God wants me dead, I will die. Here I am for a life of prayer and whatever. And if this is so, this is so. And they suddenly discovered that starting with the next day or God knows when, there started appearing some whitish thing on the rocks around their hut. They knew what it was. They scrapped it with a knife. They ate the powder, they started a lifetime of eating manna, of eating the divine food, which came to them in the same miraculous way. Nobody really can confirm that. That means in the meaning that this has not been demonstrated officially. We don't know what that is. It's not a natural phenomenon. It's not a rare, freak, natural phenomenon. It simply seems to be directly the intervention of God and his angels. And that is why... Uh, we cannot explain it. It seems that this miracle was seen only by those who had the crazy courage to go and just push it to the limit of extinction. Those who dared to abandon everything and to surrender as totally as this in the hands of God, they indeed have been sustained by God. But that is kind of the ultimate leap. It's like jumping without a safety string. There is nothing which can guarantee Chances are that you can go in the desert and in 30 days you can be stoned dead and that it be the end of it. That means nobody can promise that it will not be that way. Therefore, of course, this is something which brings your consciousness.
to a break point, to the limit where you can say, well, it's now or never. That means I am ready to put my life on it just like this. I am ready to go for it and I am not looking back. There will be no regrets. There will be no coming back. It will be just all the way. And Jesus is illustrating, of course, this spirit. He is actually telling to the human beings, live naturally. Many people believe that that would mean like to turn back, to be beasts of nature or whatever. No, Jesus doesn't say that if you will not um, reap and sow, as he says, with the birds, and do you will not store away in barns, and then basically you should be like, you should be like some uh, uh, aboriginal wild population, go around and steal bananas from trees and try to become like the primitive man, live like many people would understand that Jesus said that. But actually Jesus does not imply that. Jesus implies if you surrender completely to God, God will sustain you. There is the incredible story of St. Mark of Ethiopia, who was gone, the one who was isolated by human beings for 90 years, and the one who moved the mountain, as I said in the first month lecture about Satyam, the one who told to the mountain to move, and the mountain moved inadvertently. The same St. Mark, after he confessed that he had been eating clay and all kinds of other, he didn't have any food, and he was just eating anything and fasted and so on. At the time when he was discovered, the man who discovered him, he said that at the time when lunch came, <clears throat> he simply asked in the air and he said, Brother, lay the table. And the hand appeared and laid the table. And they, instead of one set, there were two sets. And the old man told to his visitor, who was the first man he had seen in 90 years, he said, See, the grace of God is working for you also because they send food for you also. It's kind of this man was living in an enchanted universe. He was like Alice in Wonderland. It was enough for him to say, lay the table, and an angel would come and materialize food just like this. And then when he finished, he said, take it back. And it just went back. It disappeared. That means that's the existence of somebody who lives in a who lives in, in a world that is completely magic, who, who lives in a world that is a creation of the spirit. And that is why, remember, Jesus is actually not preaching a wild lifestyle in this way. He's actually preaching a lifestyle with God. He does not say we should turn back at the level of the primitive cultures and become hunters of berries, pickers of berries and hunters of mice or whatever, and just you know, transform our lives into a pathetic crawling for food in just a, uh, just a pathetic effort for feeding ourselves. No, the saints who went in the desert, they did not try to pick up all kind of food to survive. They simply opened their hands and said, if it comes, it comes, and if it doesn't come, I shall be dead. The word of God was clear that I should surrender and I should wait for the food of God that because the spirit is more important than the food. Therefore, Jesus is suggesting a much more brave thing. Because many people say, yeah, right, I can go in a forest, and then I will start eating whatever I find in that forest. Some mushrooms, some herbs, some this, some that. Somehow I will make it. I will survive. No, Jesus is not meaning that. Jesus is saying that there is more to it 
and that involves this miraculous gift of God, which is the manna. That is what is implied by it. So in this way you can say that Jesus is actually a radical. Indeed, he does not make any compromise. He's going all the way. He says, if the Jews with Moses could live for years and years on manna, why can't you? Why can't the whole mankind just do that? And he all the time says that this is a problem of being of little faith. As about being dressed like Solomon in all his splendor, this is bringing up some very, very strange things because it appears, experiences, like about St. Mark of Egypt and a few others. There is a saint in Romania who did a similar, like in the 15th century, or I don't know, in the 17th century, I don't even remember when, who did such a thing. And about all of them, there is a very strange reference that these people, there were some people, therefore, who lived naked in the nature. They, of course, they did not have any cloth. When you live 90 years alone, there is no cloth. Even if you had some piece of cloth in 10 years, it will be gone uh, when you live like this. Therefore, these people basically lived naked. A weird oral tradition about several of them, at least those that were men, they, it says that they had become very hairy, that they, were because, that they were a bit looking like gorillas, which is a very strange thing because it doesn't seem to point to uh, an angelic pattern but to something which is really, really strange. The funny thing is that uh, there is a tradition in the area of Jerusalem which uh, among the Christian monks, the Copts, for example, from Egypt, they also carry that a tradition. Uh, there is a tradition about Adam, the first man, Adam, who, uh, whatever, his skull was in Golgotha, in the place where Jesus was crucified, by a freak coincidence, actually the burial place of Adam was exactly the place where the new Adam, the second Adam, that was Jesus, was crucified. So G Adam fucked up and Jesus saved, fixed it. So it's kind of everything comes back in a circle. And uh, there is a tradition which says that uh, a certain fruit, and I'm almost sure is the coconuts of the place or some other fruit, maybe the people from Israel will know, something which looks very much like a coconut. It looks exactly, it was the image of the head of uh, Adam. And actually I've seen uh, this monk who taught me uh, chiropractice, he had shown me a model of that, but at that time I had not really seen a raw coconut, so I didn't really know exactly what it was. It looked like a coconut, and it was very hairy. It was like a coconut, quite hairy, like this, like a raw coconut, like the covered one. So there seemed to be some things which point to the fact that some of these people living in the wilderness, they really looked wild in a way which is almost scary, because many people would say, what, are we turning back to the animal condition? I remember I found a very inspired movie which came round exactly to this problem. It is called Instinct with Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins is a researcher who by a freak of fate gets to live with the gorillas in Africa and he gets adopted by a tribe of gorillas. And he loses his clothes, he loses everything, he spends years with the gorillas, he becomes the member of a tribe of gorillas. He almost forgets to speak, of course he loses every human 
character in that thing and he starts feeling telepathic things and his consciousness moves and he gets an unusual strength. It's like a Samyama with the gorillas, but of course at the same time he still preserves his humanity. But it's like he gets a mind, a brain, which is nirvikalpa. He's not able, at, in that state, he's not thinking like a human. He's going into an altered state of consciousness, which is empty of vikalpa. Finished with the movies, finished with the clubs, finished with the books, finished with the television, finished with the dialogues with other human beings. He is like alone. And the only way to survive alone is like moving to another dimension of mind, reaching another form of mental consciousness. All these are subjects of meditation for you. I am not holding any ultimate answer to these, but it shows indeed that some of these people, men and women, who lived in the wilderness, when you get to live alone for 40 years and not to be dependent on your food, on the mercy of God alone, it means, it shows that incredible transformations may occur in the human being, some of them going down to the physical body, and definitely your mind is becoming something very, very unusual. And Jesus, of, of course, alludes to this, and the advice of Jesus is literally taken by so many mystics. Remember that the fathers of the desert, they have not been one, they have not been two, there have been hundreds and thousands and men of men and women who had this incredible courage. The first of them who started it in the 3rd or 4th century was Saint Anthony the Great. Saint Anthony the Great was an Egyptian guy. He simply meditated deeply on the sayings of Jesus. He meditated deeply on life and he said, well, if I'm looking at life, I can see obviously that the only purpose and end of life is death. The only thing which this life will bring in the end is death. Death is the only certain thing and it is the only thing which I know is coming for sure. Well, he said, if death is coming anyhow, why shouldn't I prepare for it and wait for it actively? So he ran out in the desert, he dug his own grave and he said, here is my grave, I'm waiting for the death to come. That means my life is nothing else but a long expecting of death. That's all that there is to life. It's a long, long postponement of waiting for death. Well, here I am. I'm waiting. I prepared my grave. He lived in a grave. This man lived in a hole, two by one, for all his life. That was his house. Alone in the desert, in a hole, waiting for his death to come. Because he realized, he said, what else would I want to accomplish in this life? Nothing more than that. And therefore, uh, indeed, you can be surprised, you can be shocked, because this extreme attitude of Jesus, which almost nobody would dare to encourage, even in Buddhism it's hard to find. It's true, some Tibetans have gone to extremes, but they were exceptional in that way. Jesus himself literally is kind of pushing to the ultimate things. He's saying, whoever has the strength to go there, they may as well go there. It's not wrong. And a man like St. Francis of Assisi, in the 14th century, when the full Monty went just there because uh, Jesus had said so. And therefore, this story with getting dressed by God uh, like more beautiful than King Solomon or whatever is again hiding in it some mysterious things. And Jesus is adding, inserting in between these two, 
coup of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life. That is what the human beings don't like to hear. That whatever you do, your life is in the hands of God. Your life is in the hands of a force that is supreme. And in that way, you cannot do anything about that. That is why worrying is useless. We see we human beings, we don't want to live by God. We want to live by our own strength. That's the Luciferianism of it. That's the Prometheanism of it. Instead of living by God, we want to live, no. I worked my wheat, and thus I have worked my own daily bread. It's like, I don't need God, right? Because I am earning my own bread. This is a lack of humility. It's a lack of humbleness, in which I am saying, God, I don't need you. I can earn my own living. And with my arrogance, I don't realize that even that bread which I earned through my work would not be possible if God really wouldn't want me to do that and I would die anyhow. But with my arrogance, I build this Maya because my desire forbids me to live in a total surrender. It tells me I can do it. I don't need God. This Prometheanism is actually a thing of our civilization and it stretches a good deal. That is why it is difficult for us to follow such an incredible teaching like that of Jesus. Surrender completely. Let God run your life. Live by the mercy of God and you will not be on the losing side. Of course, uh, no, we want to take initiative. We can't wait for God to help us. Therefore, we need to help ourselves. Here, the things are indeed uh, extreme and it is very difficult to follow to the letter an advice like that of Jesus. And he makes very clear all the time that people are precious. He insists on the value of the human life and he, compared to other lives, he said if grass, if God so closes the grass of the field which here is today and tomorrow is in the fire, how will he not much more close you that means you are more valid than grass, right? You realize that. If he feeds the birds of the sky, he said, would not feed you, feed you who are so much more valuable than they. That means, first of all, Jesus is very clearly putting the human life on a great value. And he implies also you who are spiritual. You will see that all the time he makes this, that the people who have chosen to practice spirituality are in a certain way chosen. They are more special. God keeps more attention on the spiritual practitioners than on the Tom, Dick and Harry because they represent more. He says earlier, you are the salt of the earth. He comes back on that idea so beautifully. And therefore, he is telling us about our eternal fretting. We fret, we fret. Oh, what I am going to do, what I am going to do. He even says... What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? And so on. It's kind of, could we live without that? Of course, it, in the way the world it is today, and that is why you can see it is a demonic world, you couldn't live like this, right? If any one of you would live like a hobo like this, you would be committed to an institution for being insane. Therefore, if you want to do something like this, you really have to run in some place where there is no human beings, 
and we will not see anybody for the next 40 years. Because as soon as the social workers will find you, they will not realize the glorious thing which you are doing, and then they will think you are crazy and you need help, and they will commit you against your own will or whatever. That is why, of course, in a world like today, even the idea of this becomes preposterous and it's like, no, you can't do this today because even the society will not allow you to live like this. Uh, therefore, any one of you ever gets the idea to go extreme like this, you'll have to do it outside of the society to run and live in a place where nobody will ever find you again because else they might think that you are in need of help. You are actually not in need of help. They are in need of help, but uh, they don't realize it. So Jesus sets the dot on the eye and he says, For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. First of all, it's a total confidence. And when he says the pagans, he actually means the non-Jews. In that time, in the environment where Jesus was speaking, the pagans were the Gentiles, the surrounding nations who were not Jewish. <clears throat> they were considered to be pagans. The name pagan is used in many ways. The Romans used the name pagans or barbarians for the people who are not Romans. Later, the Christians used the name pagans for anybody who was not Christian uh, and uh, so on. Basically, the pagans means those who are fallen on the outer side of things, those who are not in, those who are not chosen. At that time, the Jews were having this kind of aura of being a little bit more special than all the tribes and the nations around them. That is not without significance, because even Jesus himself sustains this idea, only that he claims that together with his coming, this situation is changing, that the chosen one type of statute is expanding to the humanity in another way. But basically, remember that there is a great difference. Even the Vedic Hindus of India, at the time of the coming of Jesus, were still very much polytheistic. Even today, many of the Orthodox Hindus living in those villages they have all kinds of gods and goddesses, some of them more or less uh, demonic or whatever. Let us see what's happening here. There still is light, so... Oh, it's from the UPS? So go and see the fuse down there. It must be the fuse. So please reduce all unnecessary lights because it seems the fuse is driven to. We'll take a two minutes break to see what is with the electricity.
was saying before this interruption came that Jesus said for even the for the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them he basically implies that the people the chosen ones the Israelis of the time they are not supposed to run after all these what shall we drink what shall we eat what shall we wear that involves a pretty ascetic existential condition which of course was imposed from the beginnings with Moses and with the existence in the desert and in a certain way although the Israelis were becoming a civilization they were still remaining with the psychology of living in the desert living on manna being very strict and being in the mercy of God uh, the theologians point to the fact that at least in their habitat area a little bit some exceptions in India but not all of India I was just telling you before this interruption that even India of today is falling short at that and in so many other parts of the world the society was a shamanistic animistic society a primitive society believing in spirits in gods in demons in deities that means most of the world at the time of Moses and most of the world at the time of Jesus maybe you never thought about it but most of the world at that time was a polytheistic shamanistic type of world or polytheism and at the same time shamanism and animism they pay, they can be very thrilling from the standpoint of new age uh, uh, diversity but they are still inferior modalities of being they are inferior ways of reflecting reality and that is why monotheism the one God feeling is so much superior this is pure metaphysics when we refer to something which is unique one single the absolute as one and in the geographical area where they live and pretty much on the whole earth with some small exceptions as I said in the Buddhist metaphysics and uh, in some Hindu traditions like where Patanjali speaks about a one God with the exception of those the Jews were the monotheists of the time and therefore their understanding of God was considered to be so much superior they were considering themselves the chosen ones not only with an arrogance the arrogance came later it's true that the priests and all these people of course they would like to consider themselves the chiefs of the chosen ones but the appellation was earned rightly because at the time when the Egyptians were worshipping a hundred gods the Jews already in the time of Moses they were just having only one single God how close it was Moses is going on a hill for on a mountain for 40 days and when he comes back the people are already worshiping a cult made of gold the golden cult what how little faith how quickly people are ready to go into idols and demons and shamanism and weird uh, the entities they immediately this one God is so abstract it is so far
that it is more easy to make a demonic creature or whatever and to worship it like this. Therefore, there are difficulties in a one God religion because the God which you want to feel is the top of the pyramid and it is so far from the human level, but at the same time there is like looking straight to the top, there is a kind of magnificence to it. And that is why uh, actually Jesus shows very well that he understands very well that this traditional thread which comes from Moses indeed makes those people chosen ones. He basically talks down on the pagans and he says all these people around, if you know history, you'll know that the tribes are out, all the Canaanites and Hittites and all the others, they worshipped Astarte and they worshipped the Phoenician gods and they worshipped all kinds of things around. And the Greeks worshipped the hundred gods and the Romans worshipped the hundred gods. All of them were of this kind. But in the case of the Jews, they were already coming to the truth and they had come to this truth quite early in human history. And therefore, of course, they considered themselves that compared with the others around who were a bunch of barbarians, who were a bunch of shamans, a bunch of shamanistic, confused people, they were holding an incredible theological superiority at a time when humanity was polytheistic, shamanistic, and animistic. Here was a nation which was desperately trying to hold to itself and to say, we at least have a clean faith. We at least have a unitary faith. We believe in one God that is the Lord of the universe and all those other things. That is why actually the distinction exists. There is a reason for which the Old Testament tradition has proclaimed the Jews to be separate from all the Gentiles and from all the pagans around and to be special. Because at that time they were like the spearhead of spirituality. They were much ahead of their contemporaries. All their neighbors were a bunch of primitives compared to the evolved metaphysics, to the metaphysical genius of seeing God as one instead of seeing a hundred different gods to which you pray for rain, for crops, for fertility, or for God knows what, as all the others did. And that is why Jesus says, well, if you are one of us, if you are a chosen one who believes in God, then you know, because it's not like uh, uh, the pagans who believed that if you don't sacrifice a hundred oxen, then the gods will not listen to you or whatever. And therefore he says, your heavenly father knows that you need them. Therefore, they shall be given to you. And he says the formidable sentence, which should be one of the guidelines in life for everybody searching spirituality. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That means Jesus speaks in terms of priority. What is more important? To search, to search for what am I going to eat and what am I going to wear, or to search for being one with God? He says, obviously, First, you should search for the kingdom of God. The other things can be given to you. Even if you don't apply such extreme things, look at the yogis of India. Some of them lived naked in the jungle. Some of them had a loincloth around their hips. 
Some of them lived in modesty, like uh, Shankaracharya or like uh, Ramakrishna. Or that means Ramakrishna wasn't he crazy enough to go the full Monty to do whatever would have been required from him? Of course. But in the background where Ramakrishna came, the spirituality of such a, was of such a kind that there was no necessary to go to this. Ramakrishna was a child of God. Did Ramakrishna ever sow and reap? Did Ramakrishna even uh, ever weave? And did Ramakrishna ever get a job and earn his living? No, actually he didn't, besides the fact that he was a priest in a temple, and if that can be considered a job, but that's already a religious job. And you can say, well, that's an excellent job then to have. And therefore, basically Jesus, uh, basically one like Ramakrishna, he lives like the birds of the sky. He never worked. He never had a job. He never had inheritance. He never had anything. He lived at the mercy of elements. Somehow, he was born in a pious religious world which took care of fellows like him. And thus, Ramakrishna all his life was given food, was given clothes, but it's still to the mercy of God because he himself, he never had to fight for them. He never had to accumulate them. And that is why I'm telling you all those to understand that this is not necessary to take to the extreme of running to the desert and uh, throwing the dice big time like I'm going to put my life on the line here just to check the mercy of God. Sometimes it can go just like this, that you live and you are at the mercy of God and you actually are not having any job or anything or whatever and somehow things are going Somehow God sustains you. That is why, of course, one should consider this in their evolution. And he says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is a quote from Jesus, which I so often mention when I keep the lecture on Santosha or contentment. Indeed, this is purely living in the present. In the words of Jesus, tomorrow will take care of tomorrow. Do not worry about tomorrow. And he continues with a different idea, which is also very relevant. He says again, and this has, he has mentioned already twice, we have reached to, he comes back to the same thing quite insistingly. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Things are, you can't say it more clear. I told you, if you forgive, you shall be forgiven. The one who gives tolerance shall be given tolerance. Therefore, it is worth understanding that in life, because so many com people complain and criticize and nag and hack and all the time something or somebody is wrong, 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 wrong. Remember, this is the measure with which you measure to others is the measure which is applied to you. And he uses the beautiful parable which comes next. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is such a clear 
advised that first you should save yourself, that it is a hypocrisy that one should be full of defects oneself, and while those defects are so big, they are like a plank in our eye, at the same time we are finding nag and failure with uh, some other people's defects. It is exactly as in the theory which you have for Ahimsa, while normal people ask forgiveness for them and punishment for the others, the yogis ask punishment for themselves and forgiveness for the others. It is the same, after all, it is the path of the heart that indeed, if I am humble, then my mistake, I'll put it forth and I'll say, look, this is my mistake, actually I should be humble, I am full of mistakes, I am a sinner, all these people of, uh, of great... not be so quick to expose the faults of everybody else and to say, yeah, but he is also like this and she is also like this and they are also like this because first you have to sort out your own. You cannot really see and Jesus puts things into perspective. He calls one a hypocrite. He says this is hypocrisy and it is happening all the time. And he suddenly changes and he says, do not give dogs what is sacred do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. That's another thing which is indeed entirely different and which is hiding almost a hidden law of the universe. Jesus simply says, do not give too much, do not give dogs what is sacred. What a judgmental way in a certain way because Jesus at the same time, he says there are things that are sacred, do not give them to dogs. That means some human beings are dogs in the view of, the, of Jesus. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Some human beings are pigs in the view of Jesus. That means the fact that you shall not judge does not make that you should lose your brains and become brain dead. You shall not judge is in the meaning that you don't pass judgment and condemn. A judge is the one who takes the decision and says, you shall be judged, uh, I have judged, and it's like taking a decision. It's not not understanding what is sacred and what is not sacred. It's some of this uh, absurd tolerance of the New Agers who say everything goes, everybody is a child of God, and then you can do anything, whatever people do, Satanism or witchcraft or homosexuality or whatever they do, everything goes. You cannot say anything about anybody because, but for example, Jesus is quite vehement against some people and so is generally the whole spiritual tradition. Either we look at the Buddha or at the others. If Jesus deigns here, dares even to call people dogs or pigs metaphorically and in other places, he calls them vipers and whatever. It's obvious that this judgment is not about passing a judgment. It's not about taking steps. But it doesn't mean that people should not have this discrimination, not to know, look, this is pure, this is impure. That means this man has a speck of sawdust in his eye, and I am having a big plank into my own eye. Who am I to go and judge this brother or sister of mine? I am nobody. I will not stand up and pass judgment. But this does not mean at the same time that I should be brain dead and say, well, then I can do as well what they do.
No, I will not pass judgment, but at the same time, if I'm having the feeling of value, of spiritual value, I should stick to that. It doesn't go like this, that everything goes. In spirituality, this flabby sentence, well, everything goes, is not valid, because not everything goes, obviously. And when he says, do not give dogs what is sacred, he echoes the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna himself says, do not try to wake up people that are asleep against their will, because they will get angry and turn against you. That means when somebody is not ripe, they are not ripe, and if you turn them off, you just wake up the demons, simply bringing them to action. That is basically a message for spirituality. It's even in yoga and others. If you try to go too quickly, it's like you start climbing a vertical wall. All the demons will hit the fan suddenly because you try to push it too quickly. That is why there is karma, there is opposition. We have to digest our own evils. We have to digest our own poisons. Sometimes if somebody is saying, I want you from tomorrow to live like an angel in this, it's kind of you cannot. Your own demons will make mayhem of yourself and will say, look, I'm not prepared to live like the angels, you know. You're asking from me, but actually I'm still a bit dirty. I'm still a bit demonic. I still want to go to a club. I still want to do this. I want, still want to do that. It's like a man like Jesus understands this dual nature of the human being. And basically he says everybody deserves something for the level where they are. It's not that the dogs don't deserve anything. The dogs deserve that which is good for the dogs. But they should not receive that which is for the human beings. What should pigs do with pearls? Pigs cannot use pearls. They don't understand it. And he actually reveals a mechanism of action which remember always because Jesus says, if you do, they may trample them under their feet. That means misuse that information. You tell to somebody something about the cosmic powers and instead of they honoring it, they will make fun of it. They will write a ridiculous article in a newspaper about it. They will say, look, I met one day with some freak and they told me this and that, and actually they will make a, a lot of evil. They will spread a lot of misinformation. They will spread a lot of bad things, and it's just because you provoke them by giving them pearls, and then it's actually worse than before. And that is why it's better to know exactly what to give and when to give. When you are asked to give, you give. But again, there should be a feeling, because somebody... I would know the type of manipuristic, speculative, uh, arrogant, cynical, sarcastic type of uh, dry mind who would come and talk with me and say, this yoga of yours, can you tell me some real big secrets of this yoga of yours? Uh, I heard that you are teaching yoga, this, uh, you know, I, but uh, to us it's a real uh, weird thing and so on. Uh, just tell me a few things of this yoga, we'd just like to know. But obviously from the tone and from the soul and from the resonance, I can see that this is a person who is just a pig and giving pearls is useless. What, what shall I do? I shall do nothing. You will see that even Jesus, when he's confronted with a limit situation, somebody tells him, do a miracle. And he says, these people are not going to see any miracle. It's like they are pigs. Pigs don't deserve pearls. Pearls are for the people who are already knowing how to appreciate pearls. 
the pigs may trample on them. Therefore, the pearls are rare. It's a pity to bring divine information which is precious and elaborate and which is a treasure preserved over generations and revealed by the great wise of your, by the great sages of your, and uh, just to have this given to the pigs like this. The spiritual information, the spiritual revelation deserves a better fate. It is a sacred thing. It has to be kept for those who deserve the sacred things. That is why, and Jesus continues, not only that they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. That is the ridiculousness of it. And that represents a law of the universe ultimately. Remember always you also that when you will do the mistake of giving pearls to the pigs, they will trample on it and that will defile your soul because it's kind of part of your soul has been exposed and spit on it and that's not a way to treat your own sacred aspirations and soul. It's a precious pearl of the heart and they may even turn on you and tear you into pieces. That means somebody in this situation may even become aggressive. It has happened in the case of Jesus and actually it may happen often. It has happened in the case of Milarepa, in the case of Buddha, and in the case of others. That is why this is a law of the universe. It is simply said so clearly. If you do, this may happen. This is the course of events. Therefore, Jesus here is very stern on this. It's suddenly, if you put two and two together, you will see that although Jesus is asking you to be non-judgmental, he is not asking you to be non-judgmental in the term of not having a discrimination. Because all the teaching which he gives is about being spiritual or being non-spiritual. Obviously there is a discrimination. You will look at a human being and you will know this human being is treading the path of the demonic. And people say, well, you can't judge them. Well, you can't judge them in the, meaning, in the meaning that you shall not stand up and say that person shall be shot because he's treading the path of the darkness. It's not yours to judge in this way but the fact that you can see it and say that person is treading a path of darkness and I shall stay away from it I for one am not going to do that thing that is of course allowed because that is why he divides things in sacredness and dogs the sacredness is not for dogs remember that the traditional spirituality either Indian traditionalism or Buddhism, or Christian traditionalism, and so on, they are very irritating for the demonic people of today who are trying to preach this kind of confusing doctrines in which there is no God, there is no devil, there is no purpose of life, there is no nothing and everything goes. Because in all the teachings of ancient Hinduism, ancient Shintoism, ancient Buddhism, and yes, the traditional Christianity coming from Jesus, there is a categorization of the human beings. For example, Jesus himself tends to put the pagans down. He says the pagans run after all these. That means they are kind of subhumans. They are half-humans. And we know it's not that I'm asking that they should be put out of their misery. They are there for a purpose. I am compassionate and any one of them wishes to reach 
they should be helped to reach if they have the heart for it. But at the same time, I can see the difference between the human beings. This salad of today that people refuse to think that some human beings are better and some human beings are worse, that some human beings are more evolved and some human beings are less evolved, that some human beings are more spiritual and some human beings are less spiritual, this is brain dead. You cannot live your life like this. A man like Jesus says you shall not pass judgment, but at the same time in what concerns your activity, you should know very well what is light and what is darkness, what is spiritual and what is not spiritual. Because else you can never put the problem like this, that the pagans think like this, and don't give dogs what is sacred. This is obvious that it involves a form of looking at the world with an objective eye. It's true. It's not very polite to look at uh, your own family and to say my uncle Walter is a demonic asshole and uh, I know him to be a demonic human being, you know. Many people would say, well, what allows you to say that? It's obvious when you look at the way Jesus is saying it, and Jesus does not consider that that is forbidden. Jesus says, if your uncle Walter is a pig, don't give him pearls. You should be able to see that your uncle Walter is a pig. And if you cannot see that, you are in for a big surprise, because you are going to give pearls to that pig, because you think, well, everybody is equal, everything goes, and it's not quite the truth. In the old traditions, remember that people were not considered equal at all. Not equal in front of God and not equal in front of nature. Jesus himself does not consider himself equal with all the other people. Although he is ready to give his life for mankind, and that he did in such a terrible way, nevertheless, he is not considering that people are equal. He doesn't say that people should be condemned. He doesn't say that people should be oppressed because of that. He doesn't say that people should be treated badly because they are inferior or demonic or whatever, or pigs or dogs or whatever. He says there is compassion and the love of God is universal for everybody. But nevertheless, the things that are sacred, they should be kept in the right proportion. Therefore, Jesus is having a very interesting way, although he is compassionate and ready to give himself to mankind, at the same time he makes the difference very, very clear. And he is continuing with a famous statement, which is probably one of the last ones for tonight, where he gives the famous promise, the famous guarantee coming from himself, which says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, to show you why that is, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? That means, he says, you simply don't trust. You trust in your own power to satisfy the requests of your own son, of your own child, but you do not trust 
that God will satisfy your own requests when you are humble and there. And he says, so in everything, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is indeed the essence of all of it. It can be put together with the law of karma. You see how beautiful Jesus at the same time acknowledges the law of karma that the universe pays you back with the same coin with which you pay, but at the same time he adds God to this idea. He says, besides all this, there is also the fact that you interact with the divine. I would like to call your attention on this little snippet of a sentence here, which is very, very significant, where Jesus says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good it doesn't say you, though you are mixed up or ignorant or imperfect, or he actually seems to use in this translation, and you can confront it with other translations of the Bible. He says, if you, though you are evil, that is indeed a very strange statement, which fits with some of the old theological things, because people after Adam were considered to be cursed. They were expelled by God. They were no longer in the mercy of God. And they were like punished. Adam has cursed the human race by disobeying to God. And all the descendants of Adam down to Jesus, they are cursed. That is why the old theology says that we are born of the original sin. That means people instead of being like angels, they started multiplying by sex. You can make yourselves all those connections with the Hindus and Satya Yuga, uh, the lack of the sexual manifestation, a high manifestation of kind, and then coming down to Kali Yuga, which is a world of animality and all those things. And basically, what I'm trying to get is that because everybody was born of the original sin, and the curse of God was on all the descendants of Adam, which is basically the whole humanity, then the idea would be that even the people around, yes, uh, Peter the fisherman and John the Baptist himself, the prophet, and whoever else, all the Tom, Dicks, and Harrys of the day, they were actually part of a race, of a humanity that was accursed. And that means that was evil. That is why you are going to see that there exists in theology this kind of strange thing, which is at least valid in the cradle of culture where Jesus appears, which speaks about the salvation of the soul, that there was no salvation of the soul, that even the prophets of the Old Testament, they actually did not get completely saved, they did good deeds and they were kind on the white list, but still they were children of Adam and still they had to bite the, the dust. And they were faithfully waiting for the Messiah to end the slavery of men. And that is why, yes, even Elijah and whoever, being born uh, in uh, the evil human race, they are actually doomed to go to a dark path, it is what Gurdjieff calls the sphere of the moon, it is what the Hindus call the Pitriyana, the Chandra Loka, the sphere of the moon. Again, 
that uh, is the way of going into darkness compared with the sphere of the sun, the devayana, the path of lightness, the path of salvation. I am telling you all these because there is a paradox to understand. It appears that in the moment when Jesus came and brought the new covenant, when Jesus came and re-sacralized the human being, he actually says, now I'm going back to my father because God has made peace with the human beings again. Through me, we have kind of tied the knot again. We have put the tie together again between God and humanity. Until today, until me, Jesus says, at least in this environment of Judaism and the surrounding tribes, there was no salvation, no actual salvation. There was only a limbo, even for those who were high and spiritual and virtuous, they were not fully saved. They had to wait for the Messiah to come to confirm their salvation, and then it would happen. It's a quite scary idea to think that in a thousand years of history, even the virtuous ones, they could not save themselves through their own power. They still were under the yoke of a curse, of a fate of humanity that expected, that awaited for this exceptional character of history to come and to switch on the light to kind of release the souls in captivity. That is why this is mentioned in the fact you will see later in which Jesus is famed that in the limbo, in the hours between his death on Friday evening and his resurrection on Sunday morning, he actually descended to hell. He kind of followed the way of everybody and suddenly they found themselves in hell with Jesus. And all the demons got afraid because they said, what is this one doing in hell? It's like God himself came in disguise in a surprise inspection in hell. And the demons got berserk, you know. It's like this one definitely should not be in hell. How on earth did this divine spirit called Jesus reach in hell? Because the light of this one can burn the eyes out of us. This is a divine being, and what is it doing in hell? There is no way in which such an entity, in which such a being could have reached in hell. Only by taking the body of a human being and following the karma, following the path of the human beings, he kind of played the game to the end. He embodied all the stages of the human life, from childhood and maturity and death, and yes, even going down in the world of darkness and from there suddenly the miracle has happened and the humanity was like taken out of darkness through this presence of Jesus that is why what Jesus does to mankind is valid on many levels it is metaphysically valid on many levels it's not just the action of a man who came and preached some truth and he's a hippie who says be on anahata and everybody should be it's a metaphysical thing of changing the very metaphysical integration of the human beings on this earth from its hinges radically that everything had, has changed radically together with the action of a being like Jesus that is why the fact that he says uh, 
though you are evil, he says it's like you are coming from a nature, for the time being you are coming from a nature which is not enlightened, he is pretty tough on it, he says like you are under the sway of the evil, you will see that two or three times the Bible, Jesus a couple of times, and John the Apostle in uh, uh, the Apocalypse, in the book of Revelation, they imply very clearly that what is happening today on this planet is actually under the sway of the demonic force. In the book of Revelation, the devil is called the prince of this world. It is not God that is the prince of this world. It is the devil. God is the king of the universe. But on this planet, things don't happen according to the will of God, at least temporarily. This, this planet is then more like a correctional prison. It's a bit of a hell. It's not a place where things are happening as they would happen in Hirania Loka or in a world of light. And that is why uh, Jesus describes the people of this world like being dark. It's kind of he went into prison. He went into the correctional. He went into a place where all the twisted and weird ones, the pygmies of Kali Yuga, as some Hindus have expressed it, that's where he came. That is why uh, it's not very flattering for our world that Jesus confirms that actually this is not a highly spiritual world, far from it. This is a pretty much of a correctional prison type of world. Many people would say, so this is the most shitty world in which, the most shitty loka, the most shitty type of world in which one can be born. No, maybe it's not the most shitty one. There definitely exists some which are even more violent and even more demonic and even more dark. But that shouldn't make you feel too warm because the fact that there can be something worse than this, it doesn't automatically mean that this is high. This is still pretty low on the scale of evolution. This beautiful planet on which we are born with all its wonderful things, it is still a world of pain and suffering. There is a lot of limitations starting from hunger and thirst and pain and cold and heat and all the other things. We are living in a world in which if you are not careful, a lion can devour you or a snake can strangle you. We are living in a world based of mutual devoration, where creatures eat each other, where human beings behave the way they behave. There is very little wisdom, there is very little kindness. This world is definitely not the best world that there could exist. And one like Jesus sees the panorama of the universe and he knows and says it very clearly. This is indeed, we are living in a world and this is a world which is more on the dark side. There may exist worlds, locas, planes in this universe which are based more on love, more on compassion, more on loving kindness, but it is not this world. This world is like we are in a disciplinary battalion in the army. It's like we are criminals and we have been put in the severe part. We are not in the bright part, in the kind part. It's not very flattering, but it is good to have this image because many mystics from the East and the West, they have shared this idea that this planet, maybe it's not the worst that there can be, fortunately, but it is far from being the best that there can exist. Therefore, we are somewhere low on the, for on a scale from one to a hundred, maybe we are not to zero or one, maybe we are to ten. Ten out of a hundred, 
is still pretty low on the ladder of the universe. That's approximately how uh, Jesus suggests the things. And few minutes more and then we'll stop. And he says a thing which comes again to Buddha big time. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. You cannot say it more clear. In a world like this, which is so dominated by the inferior by the material, by the demonic, by the evil. Of course, the road to perfection is narrow. Buddha defines it as a road uphill. He says it's climbing, it's easy to go down. You just let go and go down, slide down the slope. Going up, you have to make effort, you have to sweat to go up. Jesus says in terms of wide and narrow, wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. That means wherever you turn your eyes, you find another opportunity to take the road to destruction. There are so many ways of wasting your life, of wasting your awareness. And Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. From this, you can have both the entropic feeling that we have to fight for our spirituality. It's a narrow gate. Of course it's not easy. It is not meant to be easy. If you want easy, go to the broad gate. That's the easy way to go. That's where everybody, people who give up, who make compromises, they go on the, on the broad gate. Don't go on the broad gate. Don't go on the broad road. Come the narrow gate, which is of course difficult, demanding. You'll have to fight. You'll fall. You will doubt, you will hesitate, you will be, so many things will be there. But how much is the value then of a spiritual life, of leading a spiritual life, when a one like Jesus says, wide is the great gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. And the one to life, he means eternal life, he means the real life, he means the spiritual realization, it is a narrow path. This is warning you, all you who are here are tentatively trying the narrow path. You are on the narrow path and therefore if you are afraid that it is difficult, welcome to the show because it is normal that it is difficult. You want something easy, take the broad path and see where it takes you. That's easy but it leads to destruction. And that is why be proud that you are on a path which is difficult. Rejoice in the fact that you are on a narrow path because that's the only way to find life, Jesus says. Therefore, do not expect that spirituality should necessarily be easy. In the way that it is a narrow path, it is a choice that you have to make. And he says further, 
Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree does that, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. The judgment is very simple, and it is always the ultimate judgment. We can twist and twist the things. All these things are so slippery that somebody can pretend I'm a spiritual being, I'm an enlightened being, I'm a self-realized master, I'm teaching you something this and this. But then you look at the fruits, the fruits of the tree. This is where you can never cheat. This is where indeed, because a demonic being will not be able to live their whole life like an angel and to produce a lot of divine effects just to cheat the whole world. No, that the demon does not have the patience to wait for the whole life and sooner or later he will unmask itself, he will unmask himself and show the real nature. That is why it is very obvious. Ultimately everything comes to the fruit. The fruit will eventually show. People can claim, but the fruits of the tree will show. That is why Jesus is giving us one of the ultimate, perhaps it's a single judgment in history, which says how you should see the real nature of people. What do they do? Do they spread health or illness around them? Do they spread happiness or sorrow around them? Do they spread spirituality or darkness around them? Do they spread virtue or vices around them? What is the trail that remains behind them? Is it a trail of ruin, a trail of destruction, a trail of ill health, a trail of vice, a trail of demonism, or is it a trail of light? Look at some of these cults which exist today in the world, some of these weird sects and weird things. There may be people who are even fanatic in their beliefs. What comes in the wake of it? That means you see a lot of things which are demonic and dark and people dying and suffering and people being ill and so on. And therefore you realize automatically that if the fruit is not good, something must be wrong. I could give you concrete examples. There is a lot, for example, I've seen it a lot. I don't need to give literal names. There are some famous names in the spiritual environment who have gone there and only destruction and weird things resulted from them. There would be people like the Puna type of people or the Americans going to America, to Tibetan Buddhism and so on, the Richard Gere type, I don't mean Richard Gere literally, but I'm saying this kind of uh, a socialized Hollywood type of practicing Buddhism, which is definitely not Milarepa's way of practicing Buddhism and so on. And uh, you, you see all this, and then you see a lot of things. I have been appalled 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I was looking at all these people writing big words and claiming that they were doing things, and everything was like illness, cancer, death. It was kind of appalling, you know, these people are doing. I was 
at some time I had a whole collection of this magazine that the Osho people were publishing in, uh, in Pune. And it was incredible. In every number, two or three of their leading therapists were dying of cancer. It's kind of, they said, this is an obituary for our beloved Hari Prem, who just died of cancer and she was a therapist. It's kind of okay. If there is one, you can say, well, there's a weird karma. But in every number, there were two of them at least who died of weird things. And they were all in the operative. Uh, they were not pupils. They were teachers. And then it's kind of the trees known by the fruits. What kind of fruits are this? It, there can happen an accident that one of them had a heavy karma and had to pay for it and didn't manage to... But what is happening when you have a row of it? And I can give you other and other examples, but I don't want to become nominal because I'm not here to criticize. I'm here just to show the fact that this judgment of Jesus cuts through it automatically. You cannot cheat this judgment because remember that a demon's nature is to harm a demon will never be able to go to such an extent as to live, to put a mask and to live like an angel the whole life and also to do a lot of good because in the moment when the demon dies after 70 years of life, then he's like, he did not fulfill his demonic call. His demonic call was to harm, to spread atheism, to, to destroy, to kill people's hearts and hopes, not to help. Therefore, a demon can never go to such a length to say, look, I'm going to keep the image of it. And uh, yes, it's true, I'm a demon and I hate to, go, to do good. But you know what? I will do a lot of good to a lot of people just so that nobody can realize that I'm a demon. No, he can do that for two days. He can do that for one year. But then he has to come to his demonic nature because else his own purpose of life will be denied. He will find himself that, whoops, I have reached 70 years of age and I am dying, and I have been an angel for all these 70 years. Oh, shit. It's like I have betrayed my demonic task on this planet by playing too much the role of an angel. Therefore, he cannot go to such a length. He has to show his real face. And Jesus knows this, and he says, you catch them all by the fruit. The fruit, ultimately, they can be nice for one year, they can be nice for two years, and then they will come back to the real dark story that is there. And therefore, this judgment is ultimate. Remember, when you don't know what to look at, look at the fruits always. There can be a bad fruit here and a bad fruit there, but when it is full of bad fruits, automatically, Things are knowing good, not going good. And uh, between the lines, Jesus has sneaked here a stern warning, which is saying actually something about the attitude of God to these ones. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That means, ultimately, it's not even an equal thing. Well, some trees are good, some trees are bad. Eh, no. The bad tree is going to be cut and thrown into the fire. That is a warning, a stern warning coming from Jesus, showing that actually this is going to be paid. And remember that it refers specially to the false prophets. It starts by saying, watch out for false prophets. Look from this standpoint at the lives of people 
and you are going to see a lot of revealing things which shows exactly this what is a false prophet and what is not he continues and that's the really last thing that we'll go through today not everyone who says to me or to God maybe Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my father who is in heaven basically he says what Buddha says Buddha says when you are going to die nobody is going to ask you if you believe in Lord Ishvara or not but you are going to ask to be asked what your deeds have been in this life it is the deeds that will decide your karma and will decide what will be outcome of your life therefore Jesus says forget about the honeyed tongue and saying Lord Lord the facts the one who does the will of God is the one who can reach who will be saved will enter the kingdom of heaven therefore Jesus is very aware of this hypocrisy and he realizes that this lip service type of religiousness that people practice today is just not going to serve anything the fact that somebody proclaims themselves a Christian and when they are going to die they say a prayer doesn't serve doesn't really save them from anything if their deeds have been demonic all their lives many will say to me on that day Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles then I will tell them plainly I never knew you away from me you evildoers as a stern face of Jesus as I told you he is not at all a compromising person when it comes to things of spirituality that simply means he implies here some people might even get to prophesize in the name of God they might even drive out demons and perform miracles incredible because yes today with some methods of parapsychology with some alternative science with some knowledge of Hatha Yoga with some paranormal powers or whatever you can do healing and maybe do miracles and whatever even this woman who was healing the Russian Central Committee of the party Juna the biotherapeut this strange woman who had the paranormal power to heal with her hands she basically healed and basically you can say this is a miracle for the world in which we live that somebody can take some old communist cuckoo and lay hands on them and make them healthy again and give them five more years to live does such a person go automatically to the kingdom of heaven or is recognized by Jesus no Jesus says because they didn't do it in the right spirit they may say it so they actually they may even have effect I have seen images from some of these evangelist firebrand preaching things in America some of these people who do television evangelism or this kind of hallelujah brothers and sisters drop your crutches and walk hallelujah the Lord has healed you and so on there are such things there are places where they keep all the crutches and all the wheelchairs of people who raised and started walking in all kind of Pentecostal Baptist evangelist weird uh, gospel type of churches and that is not a miracle from God they are coming because of a collective hysteria of course if you whip people up to a level of uh, 
frantic hysteria and 50 people are singing and dancing in delirium and everybody is saying hallelujah hallelujah we are going to see a miracle it will happen but it's not from god it's produced by an avalanche effect produced by a collective hysteria of hundreds of people in this way some of these weird sects for example they accuse all kind of miracles they say yeah you say so but you know that in our prayers in the last 10 years more than 15 people have been who are paralyzed they stood up and started walking actually i know for a fact from analysis in parapsychology that most of these people who wake up and walk uh, who stand up and walk in the middle of a firebrand preaching or session or whatever afterwards after 24 hours or so they fall back in their wheelchair it comes back because it was just a moment of exaltation given by a energy a mysterious collective energy which is of the nature of hysteria and you are pumped up with it and then like a balloon after 24 hours or 48 hours you are back to where you were your wheelchair is in that hall witnessing to a miracle that miracle is hardly a miracle it's a manifestation of collective hysteria and therefore uh, miracles pseudo miracles by using parapsychology or whatever they are possible you can do a miracle by using a pyramid you can do a miracle by using a radionic device or a radiesthetic device you can do miraculous and paranormal things by doing many funny things but they are not necessarily coming in the name of Jesus. Jesus says, either you are with me, either you are with God in spirit, or if not, the lip service, or the fact that you will say, but I preached in your name, and so on. Try to think. There are many absurd sects which subject their members to all kinds of absurdities, ultimately, starting with the Jehovah Witness type of intolerance, and finishing with, I don't know, the Mormons or whoever, you will find a lot of them, and each one of them believes they are holy, and the rest is going to burn in hell. All the other 2,000 Christian types are not good. Theirs is the only good, and they discover the truth, and they are the only ones who are going to be saved. And these people are relying on something, right? Well, Jesus says, although the preachers and whatever they, are, they may have preached, in my name still it is the fruits of the tree which decide it is the obeying obedience to the will of god which ultimately decides that is why uh, remember this aspect also because jesus is very clear and he is giving us not even in india have i encountered uh, or in tibetan literature a way of defining what is spiritual and what is not spiritual how to see it because it's easy to say well if that person is enlightened how should I know who am an ignorant human being maybe that guy or woman they are behaving absurdly my baby they are prophets after all maybe they have a power and I also heard that yesterday they healed somebody with their prayer so they must be well Jesus says not necessarily therefore the only way to look at is the fruits of the tree which is indeed a very Buddhist way of turning you back to the actions, to the karma. It's not what you pretend you believe, but the way that belief reflects in your daily life and in your actions. If you believe in God, 
then it will be seen in the fruits of your tree. If you are a spiritual being, then it will be seen in the fruits of your tree. If not, it does not exist. So in this way, Jesus is very down to earth. He is such a realist in this way because he says, let's not get ourselves drunk with words. Many people can say words. The thing is the action, the practice, what you actually do. I will stop here. We have been going through quite a bit also tonight. We'll see if you have any questions. If you would like to discuss about some things, there is not so much time because we also lost some time with this interruption with the electricity. Let's see if there are any suggestions. Unfortunately, because it's dark in the hall there and I'm blinded by this big light, I can hardly see you. I normally cannot see you with these lights on, but now I can see only those of you in the first row here and the others I cannot. So therefore, if somebody from the back there, which is for me is a wall of darkness, uh, if somebody from back there wishes to say something, please make yourself visible because else I will not be able to see if you want to ask anything. Let us see if we want to get into some comments or questions. Please. person claims that they are something. And therefore, look at the fruits. Yeah, and the results of those actions. The action can be good and the result can be bad, actually. It is interesting that some people, even when they try to help, they still create a trail of destruction behind them. That's very significant. If that is the case, it's like Something is really, really wrong. So, 